This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right, shall we dive straight in? So Let's do it. and welcome to Spokes. Our guest in this episode is Frankie Gaffney, an Irish writer and linguist from Dublin City. In this episode, he talks about his love of James Joyce's Ulysses, his hatred of school and his subsequent return to education to study English at Trinity College at age 24. He also talks about linguistics, about getting his PhD and about some of the articles he's written for the Irish Times, including one in particular, which resulted in a pylon against him. I started by asking him about his childhood. So I was born in uh, in Hollis Street, which we always associate with kind of uh, uh, the, the, the more posher people in Dublin. Um, and they say, you know, the Northsiders are all the, the rotunda or um, the more working class outsiders in, in the kiln. But um, my man and I lived in uh, Percy Place, in kind of a, a bed set or something there. Um, my man was quite young. She was she was 17 when she, she got pregnant and stuff like that. And uh, so I, I can't think of my earliest memory, but one of the the memories I've been told about, about that time is um, my dad wouldn't get out of bed to go down and... Uh, um, register my birth after I've been born so his name's not on the birth cert or anything like that it's just there's just a stroke I seen the birth cert and there's just a stroke where father should be so um, that probably uh, uh, accords with some of your um, ideology Colette what, what do you mean my ideology <laughs> ah no I'm, I'm just slagging because um, you know the the idea of uh, well you know Joyce said uh, fatherhood is a legal fiction and um, you know emphasised motherhood a lot more Oh, really? Joyce did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joyce said that. But I think he had, um, he probably had a similar relationship that, that I did with my dad because, uh, you know, my dad was very entertaining. And, you know, I've realized that he did have an influence on me in, in a lot of ways, some positive ways, like kind of a um, irreverence and a disrespect for authority and stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, Joyce said, you know, I can't remember exactly what he said. My, my, my father was, um, you know, a, a, a shouting politician, something in a bank. Uh, salesman for a distillery, a tax collector, uh, you know, went to all through all these jobs that his dad had. And then at the end, it says, I'm, I'm currently appraiser of his own past. So Joyce was kind of, um, you know, he, he, he was very uh, uh, uncomplimentary about his dad, I suppose. And very, um, he, you know, Joyce said that you always feel a guilt towards your mother because it's the one debt you can't repay in life. Um, you know, if your dad gives you money, you can give him money back. Or if somebody looks after you when you're sick, you can look after them when they're sick. But you can't give birth to your mother. So he said you always had a special connection um, with, with, with your ma that, that, that couldn't be broken, you know. And would you agree with that? Yeah, certainly, certainly. But I suppose, like, well, listen, it depends on, you know, case by case. And you know, some of my friends have been brought up by, by their dads. Um, and so they probably feel uh, that way towards them. Um, yeah, so, but but certainly in my case, yeah, I, I have a very spe- special connection with my mom. My mom, you know, 
was always very encouraging towards me. Um, she always gave me books. Uh, she always, you know, I remember, you know, one of the things I think that's really influenced me as a writer and in my academic work as well is um, when I was a kid, I used to do drawings and my ma would kind of give me feedback on them. And she'd say, oh, you know, I like the way you've done the shading here, but the, uh, the perspective is not good or the proportions, you know, you've drawn the heads too big. It was, that was a constant refrain. I think, you know, kids tend to do that, don't they? And, uh, you know, I think I really crave that, you know, positive, you know, not just positive feedback, but constructive criticism. And, uh, you know, I remember showing drawings to me granny and she's just like, oh, yeah, that's very good. And, I, you know, it didn't feel like the same thing at all. So I think that was something I got from me mad. I didn't get anywhere else. And I think it was um, really important in developing, uh, you know, critical kind of faculties or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it when it comes to art and when it comes to literature and all of that, I think it was easily transferable. So at the moment, what are you up to at the moment? Um, I am uh, still writing. I'm still writing. I'm, I'm working on academic stuff. And, uh, you know, I've, I've plans for, for getting back into to writing fiction that um, I won't reveal. Have you, uh, yeah, sorry. Have you finished your PhD? Yeah. Yeah. PhD is done. Um, I finished PhD a good while ago. Couldn't graduate because of COVID, obviously. So um, I wanted to have a... a in you know, real life graduation ceremony. We could have done the virtual thing. And uh, I didn't really fancy sitting on a couch in a gown with a glass of Prosecco on my own. Um, I didn't go to my undergraduate graduation or my master's graduation. Um, and so I was kind of looking forward to a day out and, you know, taking my out and and uh, make a bit of a, a noise about it, you know, when, when the PhD was done. So it was a bit of an anticlimax. But uh, hopefully we'll get to do it in, in real life soon enough. So at the moment, then you're trying, you're compiling academic articles from the material of the PhD, really, is it? And um, no, no, I've, I've written written a couple of articles. Um, I wanted to, you know, keep keep the ball rolling. So they, they, they're they're related to the to the PhD in the sense that I use linguistics to analyse literature, and that's really what I'm interested in in terms of literary criticism. Um, but they're they're very different from the, the subject of the PhD. So the the, the PhD was on spelling, punctuation, and typography. And the the papers I've written now, one of them is kind of about dialect in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And um, the other one I won't talk about because it's this specific theory that I've come up with. And uh, I, I want to, to test the waters with it a little bit first and get some feedback on it before I throw it out there. But I suppose something you, you, you might be more interested in is how I got into um, that area of... Uh, literary studies in the first place. So uh, I, I done my undergraduate uh, degree in English at Trinity, and uh, I really loved it. You know, some brilliant lecturers, and um, it was just really engaging. But reading, you know, all of these new novels and plays and uh, poetry that I hadn't been exposed to before, and learning about um, the you know, historical milieu that produced them and stuff like this with, with some of the, you know, best lecturers in the world. Uh, but I did feel at the end of the course that um, we focused on the, you know, the, the, the plot, the characters. Uh, we focused, you know, on, you know, a lot on certain political modes of criticism. So post-colonial criticism, Marxist criticism, even feminist criticism and stuff like that. And while I think all of those lenses are useful lenses in understanding literary texts, um, I kind of wanted to, to to go back to fundamentals a little bit. And, you know, texts are composed of language. And I also felt that sometimes in some of the, the secondary source material we're reading, there was a bit of a lack of rigor certainly the postmodernist stuff. And I wanted something that was a bit more rigorous. So linguistics, you know, is a scientific study of language. And I think it's, it's, it's perfectly, um, it's a perfectly acceptable practice to apply the scientific study of language to literary texts. And I think it's actually a benef very beneficial approach. Um, so I felt it was something a bit more meaty and a bit more empirical than a lot of the approaches that we'd um, kind of engage with. You know, we did a brilliant course um, called Critical Cultural and Theory. So we got to try on all these cr different critical hats. And, um, you know, there wasn't much linguistics in it. Saussure was in it, but the, the linguistics hat was the one I, I was, was most interested in. So, you know, the, the fundamental um, um, object of study is linguistic, you know, when you're, when you're studying literary texts. 
So I think it's a really good way to, to approach um, trying to understand literature. Right. So you did a PhD. Tell me again, spelling, grammar? Um, spelling, punctuation and typography. So basically, basically, my argument was that most of the time when academics are talking about literature, they could be talking about audio versions of the, the books and the poems and, and stuff like that that they're, they're discussing because they're talking about, say, post-colonial um, theory you know, um, and how it's affected uh, the, 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 the construction of the text or whatever. And my argument was that, look, if we're talking about novels, say, and I was specifically focusing on novels, if we're talking about novels, novels are books, um, and we engage with novels by reading them, not by listening to them. And so we have to pay attention to the appearance of the text. So, um, uh, you know, typography in terms of, uh, font choice, but also like italics and capitalization and those practices within um, within texts and um, punctuation. Like I wrote, uh, you know, a case study on ellipsis points, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I spent about a year uh, writing about ellipsis points and I thought I was going to be like the ellipsis point expert in the world. And then this academic came out with a monograph and Tone actually came out with a, with a monograph on ellipsis points in literature that same year. So I had to go back and integrate um, or um, opinions on the matter into the into the thing, and I'm certainly no longer the the world's ellipsis point in literature expert. But the argument in 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 um, in that segment on ellipsis points was that the, you know they used to use a dash for the functions that we use ellipsis points for now, you know, to represent the pause or whatever. And um, I argued that uh, the the ellipsis points better convey. Um, a, a, an actual pause because there's a, a rhythmic element to how we conceive of time. You know, if you think of a heartbeat or the ticking of a clock or whatever, and the ellipsis points convey that visually, you know, dot, dot, dot. So it seems like a pause. Um, and I said, you know, I suppose, you know, what I, the conclusion I came to was why they didn't come in earlier. They came in at a specific point, kind of the interwar period. And that was the period when the typewriter came to, to, to prominence. Mark Twain, submitted the first typewritten manuscript. But at the stage he submitted it, it was still like a piece of office equipment, much like computers in the 1970s where, you know, only big companies had them. Uh, so the typewriter, I think, changed how people produce uh, writing. And we often talk about the, the transition from manuscript to print. Um, but we, you know, it's very rarely talked about the, the effect that tra uh, the transition from handwriting to typewriting had on literature say for example but also you know how we produce text generally i think it's, it's interesting now as well because we're living in an age where there's more text and we're producing more text than we ever did in the history of humanity and you know yourself nobody answers the phone anymore everybody just wants to, to text so they can check their notifications while they're typing out a message to you and um, so it's interesting to look retrospectively at those issues now because i think again the technology is really influencing the way we write now for example um when uh, text messages first started off, there was this brilliant creativity in it and people were writing um, in their, their local dialect. So, for example, they were dropping the G off standing uh, to just write standing, S-T-A-N-D-I-N without a G to represent the way they pronounced it. And then they were using dialectal words like Frankie's gaff instead of Frankie's house. But they stopped doing that because of predictive text. And now people, it's, it's kind of homogenized. So, you know, again, those little cultural peculiarities were ironed out by, you know, this technology. And, you know, you've lots of opinions as well, I'm sure, about how um, social media has that effect in lots of ways um, of um, homogenizing uh, discourse and homogenizing the way we, we uh, interact with each other. And you said that it's important that we read text or look at it. Why? I, I don't think, you know, it's necessary for everyone to do it in their day-to-day -day lives so much, but for somebody who's interested in studying literature. Samuel Beckett said this about, about uh, Joyce. He said, it's not only to be read, it's to be looked at and listened to. And what he meant is that Joyce wrote in a way that um, the appearance of the text on the page was important. So, for example, he put in newspaper um, headlines and stuff like this. That doesn't really translate well into an audio version. You can't see that it's written all in capitals like a newspaper headline. Do you know what I mean? So... That's what I mean by looking at it rather than reading it. And there's little cues like that. Like, for example, um, there, there's like so-called chick lit versions of Jane Austen. 
that have, uh, you know, uh, like a cover, like the Bridget Jones diaries. And they kind of inflect how someone picks up that text then. They think of it then not as some snotty, you know, um, 18th century literature, but as, uh, you know, a fun um, uh, text that is, you know, young people can enjoy, say, or whatever. It, 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 it doesn't seem like this academic text. And in those chick, so-called chick lit versions of Jane Austen, um, or sorry, in the, the, the more um, the more classic versions then of Jane Austen, they had uh, bits at the very start of each chapter in one of the in one of the editions of, of Jane Austen. They had bits that kind of imitated handwriting to give this impression of writing at the time. And again, that wouldn't translate into an audio version of the text. So that's what I mean by looking at, at literary texts. You know, mm. um, I think there's a lot of information that gets completely neglected by literary critics. By, by some literary critics, uh, because they, they, you know, they, they conceive of the text in terms of um, the, the, the story and the characters, or you know, very often just in, in, in political terms that are sometimes anachronistic, you know, and sort of kind of moralistic as well. Um, that I don't think is a very fruitful way to, to, to study literature often. You said there about you're doing your degree. You really enjoyed your degree, but I know that your schooling, your education, secondary school wasn't necessarily something you did enjoy or was it? And you just tell us about school for you. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be too negative about it because like there were some great teachers there. And um, in hindsight, I did probably learn a lot, you know, particularly in, in history and, and geography um, classes. But like, Jesus Christ, I hated school. Like, I hated it. You know, I would do anything to get out of there. And I was just like, oh, you know, I remember one time going to the shop for my man. I came back with the change and I handed it to her and uh, there was a note in it. And uh, I went to an all-Irish school, you know, so it said, uh, Pruncius needs to go to the dentist at, you know, half 11 today or whatever. And I was after writing it myself. I was like, oh, no. Um, but, you know, I was just going on the Mitch the whole time. We actually found a way out through the basement at one stage as well. And we used to climb down there like, you know, like, the great escape or something like that uh, and, and and get out so yeah I was just I wasn't there you know was, apparently I had the worst attendance on record at that school they said to me and then in 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 sixth sixth year the teacher came down to read out an essay to the class as an example of you know how to write an essay and it was my essay and uh, she said so this is a, a brilliant essay you know this is what you should be aiming for um, and uh, Pruncius wrote it and uh, he's not here but it's very interesting to note that he was marked in this morning um, at, at roll call or whatever so it you know it obviously sneaked out in the interim so yeah I just didn't I didn't apply myself at all I, you know mentally I was a million miles away from school and I had no interest in it and so I was out well, there you know. Why did you hate it so much? I don't know I don't know you know part of it I think um, is possibly you know a very simple thing of um you know, sleep cycle and, you know, they say teenagers um, need more sleep and sleep later and stuff like this. And certainly I was felt zombified uh, going into school at, 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 you know, we were in 20 to 9 we were in. Um, so I think if I started later, I might, I might have had a better chance. Uh, my Irish wasn't good. I hadn't been to an all-Irish primary school and I was in an all-Irish secondary school. So that didn't help either. But um, I don't know. Like, I look at my little brother as well and, and you know, he's left school now. <laughs> He's left school, but not by choice. But uh, he um, he just hated it as well, and he was fine. Primary school, he was he was grand. He was in every day, and and then secondary school. So I, I don't I don't know. I think it just feels constrictive, or I don't know. I don't know. But even you know, when I think about university as well, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have tried that university if I had gone when I was eighteen or anything like that. Like I was twenty four or twenty five when I went back, and um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it wasn't social aspect of school then. I I didn't like social aspect. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, yeah, I wasn't popular in school. Um, there was a little bit of bullying. I wasn't bullied too bad. Um, you know, so there was a couple of kids who had been bullied, you know, quite badly in, in the school and 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 left left our class and stuff like that. But um, you know, I wasn't popular. I didn't really you know have good friends there. I didn't go in and enjoy it. So I wasn't into sports either. Um, you know, and the, the, the school was, was quite into sports. Wes Hulham was in my class who plays for Ireland, um, and uh, or played for Ireland, 
So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there, was, there wasn't anything really keeping me there. You know what I mean? And, you know, this is the thing. Like, I was, I was big into reading still and stuff like that. And I remember one time that the teacher wrote home because in, in Irish class, he'd come down and caught me reading a book under the desk. I was reading Gene Kerrigan's Hard Cases um, about, uh, you know, gangland crime in Dublin. And it concerned him that I'd been, re- you know, I'd been reading it for the whole year under, or, for, you know, for the whole term or whatever under the table and not paying any attention to what the teacher was saying. So we sent a note home to me, ma, about that. So, yeah. And uh, what brought you back then? Like, or why did you think at the age, you said it was 24 when you went back to, mm, you went back mm. to education. So what, what, what put it even, what put the seed of the idea into your head to even think of going back? Yeah, I suppose like that, like I'd say I was very lucky that um, my ma was, you know, quite intellectually engaged. The house was always full of books. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been kind of involved in politics when I was a teenager, you know, in activism and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I'd say that came from my ma as well. And, uh, you know, I'd got into a lot of trouble um, then in the interim years. Um, and I needed to get out of the life I was living, certainly. Uh, you know, What kind of trouble? Um, various kinds of trouble. I've, I've gotten various kinds of trouble. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I probably, you know, shouldn't go into it, but either, I was. It was getting to a stage where, you know, I could have ended up, um, either in prison or dead or something like that. Like, you know, that, at that stage, so it kind of was was time to to extricate myself. But I often think, you know, and, and some people have, have given me real credit for this, oh, it's a great way you turn your life around and all this kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the people that I know that ended up, say, shot or in prison or whatever, they didn't have the the opportunity that I had um, because I had um, always been encouraged to read and always encouraged to discuss um, art and literature and politics and stuff like that at home. Um, they just didn't have that and they didn't have the, the you know, the, the, I suppose, the fundamental kind of um, basis to, to adjust easily to, to um, university life. Now, I didn't do TAP. There's a Trinity Access program that I think is, is very good or seems to have, you know, got a lot of people that wouldn't have gone to university otherwise and introduced, given them that um, you know, basis to, to go on to, to study. It's a one-year access course. Uh, I didn't do that at the time. You just interviewed. So I didn't need my leaving cert. I failed my leaving cert and all, you know. So I just did a few interviews and wrote a sample piece or whatever for, for Trinity and got in that way. And at the time as well, the back to education allowance was quite generous and the, the, there was um, rent allowance and grants on top of the back to education allowance. So you could live, you, you could afford to support yourself and go for a meal, say, you know, twice a month or whatever as well. And not just live like a pauper. Um, for and I think it's very, very difficult for young people now, or you know, or mature students. Sorry, you know, anybody that wants to go back to university now, if they're only getting back to education allowance, and you know, you're going into if you're going into Trinity, you're going in with some very wealthy young people, um, who have also had the, the benefit of a, a private schooling as well. Um, so you know, the 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 system I think is is very unfair, and I think I was very lucky. To, to just be at that time, you know, when there was there was a generous um, back to education scheme that was essentially nearly double what, what it is today. Um, so, yeah, I think I was I think I was very lucky. And how did you feel like that must have been weird at 20, 24 mm. from the background you were from, like having failed your leave insert and, you know, in dodgy situations yeah. for the previous years. And suddenly you're in Trinity College with the, you know, the. How would you say, like, well, the private educated and yeah, the most well yeah. off in, in, in the country, I suppose. That, that must have been weird. Yeah, I had like a chip on my shoulder and I was very insecure as well. And, uh, you know, just always amazes people when I say it now. But I didn't talk really at tutorials very much, um, you know, certainly for the first couple of years. And I actually used to have panic attacks and shit before the night before a tutorial, if I knew that I was going to have to speak. And certainly if I had to give a presentation. And like now, if I go on telly or anything now, live TV, it doesn't phase me at all. I'm just thinking like, when is it my turn to talk again? You know, <laughs> but um, then I used to get very nervous and uh, yeah, it was, it, it was difficult. And, you know, um, it, it's good that, that young people are, are very confident and, and stuff like that. And not everybody as well, like from a private school background has, a, has an easy life. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they could have an incredibly emotionally distant 
father or parents that are just concerned with their careers or, you know, whatever. And, you know, there's plenty of, of those people with serious mental health issues and all of that. So I don't want to fall into this trap of like, oh, I had it so much harder or whatever. Um, you know, like, you see, some of that was personal as well. Like, you know, not everybody from my background, you know, would feel um, self-conscious or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, but I suppose for me, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel I fit in. I haven't, I didn't make many friends. Um, and I kind, I kind of kept a bit of a distance, I suppose, intentionally as well. I suppose look at that stage as well. Like I had, you know, my own social life and my own friends and all of that, and you know, I didn't feel like, um, and you know, I was there to, I was there to learn. I was there to work, and I, you know, I did well. I got forced, and I applied myself, and you know, stuff like that. So that was what I was there for, and I'm very happy with the with the, the education I got there. And uh, was it like a gradual process of you becoming more confident then over your years in Trinity? I think so. I think so. But I think it happened more afterwards, you know, after after that, I became more confident in terms of, you know, uh, I haven't been a, 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 you know, shy retiring type in every facet of my life before that. You know what I mean? It was just like, you know, speaking in, in tutorials and stuff I found intimidating, um, you know, in, in this academic context, whereas like out with my friends, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd be, you know, the life and soul of the party. But um, I suppose after that, I, I remember, I think it's a really good, like, heuristic, actually, you know, for anything people are nervous about is that, like, um, you know, slow uh, baby steps or whatever. Because when my book came out, uh, I first I did, like, local radio pre-recorded, then national radio pre-recorded, then local radio live, then national radio live, then I was on telly pre-recorded, then live telly. And stuff. So, so, yeah. Sorry, can I just check then? So, when did you finish the degree, and when did you write the the novel, Dublin Seven? Yeah. So, um, I finished the degree then. What well, must have been, um, twenty eleven or something like that. And I wrote the novel then. You know, kind of over the next two years, I think. Um, no, like, you know, I wrote the novel very fast. Sorry, I, I had been doing writing and, you know, writing little bits and pieces and stuff like that. And I'm kind of including that in, in writing the novel. But no, I, um, yeah, I wrote the novel after I finished the degree, um, kind of during, during the master's, um, you know, in and around that time. Okay, so, yeah, that's, I was a bit confused then. You went straight from the degree into doing the master's. Is that when you got the scholarship? Uh, no, I got the scholarship after the master's. Uh, so I got the scholarship, I got the Usher Fellowship then to 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 do the PhD. But the PhD went um, over time because, you know, I suppose the, the novel took up a lot of stuff, but my um, dad passed away then in the middle of it. And, you know, it ended up going, um, got, taking a, a couple more years than, than I expected. So the money ended up flowing in the opposite direction. And I much preferred it when it was going from Trinity to me rather than from me to Trinity. Right. <laughs> so a, a lot happened, like basically between going back to college, bringing out a novel, doing your master's, getting a scholarship, <laughs> writing a PhD. That's a pretty intensive few years. And you wrote articles as well. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Like, it's, I suppose it sounds like, you know, I had this really high work rate or whatever. You know, it didn't feel like that. You know, like I'd, you know, I find doing a power half hour with, with, with writing certainly more productive than sitting in front of a computer for, you know, five hours kind of staring at the, at the blank screen. So, and as well as that, you know, I kind of walk to my own, at my own pace and to my own schedule. Like, you know, I'm kind of more of a night owl than a morning person or whatever. And, um, I, you know, might do a little bit of work at the weekends and take a day off midweek or whatever. So it didn't feel like, you know, I was under mad, mad pressure or anything. Um, so yeah. And if you were to choose now, I mean, do, do you feel like you're pulled in the direction of academia and of writing or are they compatible? Do you want uh, both? To me, they're absolutely complementary. And, you know, I find it um, incredible. Like, for example, Ulysses, uh, you know, I, I found it a difficult text. And it's a book that changed my life that I love. Um, I think it's, you know, the greatest novel of all time. But I wonder would I have read it if I hadn't had a year um, you know, as an undergraduate studying it. And we went to a tutorial every week and discussed it. And, you know, we had the greatest um, Joycean scholar in the world, Professor Sam Sloat, um, you know, uh, illuminating the, those elements of the text that uh, are kind of hard to decipher. Um, so, you know, say Ulysses has influenced me then as, as a writer as well. 
but also like you know the, the the stuff like so for example you know the stuff I was talking about about um looking at novels you know I very much made my novel about um about that and had lots of visual things in it so for example set in 2004 that's the time when people were texting on the those little Nokia's and I got the the or the editor got for me he got the exact font the Nokia font um, and we used that in the text messages so it really gives that sense of of texting at that time um you know and there's other little snippets like that that are you know purely visual um, that are that are in the novel so i find i find the academic study of literature and and writing you know absolutely it's a perfect yin yang for me and i'd love to continue to do both mm. i remember like ulysses i didn't do an undergrad in english but i broke my ankle once playing soccer with my son when he was yeah. really small and uh, so i had i think it was six weeks in a cast and I thought, now I'll read Ulysses because I couldn't do anything. So mm, I did. Mm. I read it. And uh, sure, I think I didn't really understand it because I was yeah. just reading it on my own. But I got to the last chapter, Molly Bloom's soliloquy, I think mm. is the last chapter. And I thought, oh, my God. When I got to that, I thought it was worth it just to get to here, yeah. to read that yeah. at the end. Yeah, that's brilliant. I don't think I didn't think you need you didn't need anything to read that last chapter and to just like just immerse yourself in it. To me, it was such a pleasure when I got to that point. But a lot of the rest yeah. of it, to be honest, it was hard work. It's absolutely. But I think, you know, it's helpful if you approach it with the, with, with the kind of idea. If I understand 10 percent of this, that's fine. You know, you don't have to understand every bit of it. And if you go in with that kind of attitude, you kind of appreciate the little nuggets that you do get. Um, you know, we're kind of probably overemphasizing how difficult it is as well. Like, you know, in hindsight, it does feel like a struggle. But if you pick it up and read it for a second time, it's 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 much easier. But I think also as well, if people are interested in reading it, um, if they watch the films, there's two film versions. There's a 1960s film version um, and there is a, a one with Stephen Ree called Bloom. Um, and uh, the, the same actress that played... Um, uh, Imelda Quirk in The Commitments. Uh, what's her name? Angeline Ball plays Molly Bloom in that and she's just brilliant, you know. She's the, the, the you know, archetypal Molly Bloom for me. Um, and I think I think Joyce would have approved of those film versions. Like, neither of those film versions is perfect. But, of course, Ulysses is um, a, a translation of, uh, you know, the, the Greek myths. But even Joyce called it Ulysses as well to emphasise that it had already been translated because that's the Roman name. So we didn't call it Odysseus. Um, he called it Ulysses. And I think Joyce saw it as an iteration of this story um, and would have totally approved of other people telling it in different ways and stuff like that. And I think, you know, see, I, I had I, I'd seen the Bloom film before I read it. And I think that really gave me helped give me a sense of kind of what it was about um, and stuff like that. So, you know, it's not a book that you, you, you don't need you, you need to avoid spoilers for. I mean, the story is a man goes for a walk in Dublin for a day. Um, nothing's gonna, you know, ruin ruin the thing for you. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, there's a brilliant book called uh, Ulysses Unbound by Terence Killeen. That's a very short book, but it gives like an explanation of every chapter. And if you read that, if you read it Ulysses chapter by chapter, and then read the little explanation by Terence Killeen, I think that's also a good way to 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 do it on your own. If anyone is interested in, in reading Ulysses, but my professor Sam Sloat says to me that if you check secondhand copies of Ulysses, if you check, there's there's three places. And it'll usually be turned to either one of those three spots. You know, there's three places where people typically give up. Um, so you can you can look at it and it's it's usually the same page that people just give up on. Oh, really? Yeah. Because it's so difficult to read. Yeah, well, you know, you know yourself, there's bits in it when it just turns into completely indecipherable um, um, stuff, like the, the Oxen of the Sun chapter when it suddenly... Um, I think that's probably the best chapter to explain what Ulysses is about. So... You know, each episode of Ulysses, each chapter is in a different style that corresponds to the content of, of, of that chapter. And this was Joyce's aesthetic. Like Joyce had a, a picture on his study wall of his dad's home city of Cork. And the frame of that picture was made out of Cork wood. So, um, you know, form matching content or whatever. And the, the, that chapter in, in Ulysses is set in the, the maternity hospital in Hollow Street, where I was born. Um, and that chapter has nine parts and each one is in a different style of English going from uh, Chaucerian English through uh, Middle English to, you know, Victorian Gothic 
uh, up to Cockney Ryman slang, let's say. And so each of those nine parts corresponds to one month of fetal development because it's in a maternity hospital. So, yeah, it can be a bit... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're not prepared for it. Did you ever read Finnegan's Wake? Uh, no. No, I haven't. I haven't. I've, I've, you know, obviously I've read bits of it. I keep it um, in my toilet. <laughs> I think Joyce would have approved <laughs> of that as well because it's a book you can yeah. pick up and just, you know, read a snatch of. But it's, it's, it's not a book that spoke to me. It's, you know, um, yeah. It's, but you just say it's dead. Yeah, massively, massively, massively. And it, again, you know, it's, it's, it's because it's, it's so Dublin centric, I suppose. And, you know, the, loads of those places are still there, um, you know. And if you, if you were to put your finger on exactly what it was about it that captured you, what was it? Like initially, probably that Dublin thing. And, you know, this kind of like, you know, patriotism for my home city, sort of, uh, probably. But then the thing that really, you know, touched me is the the kindness and humanity in it and um, the gentleness in it, I suppose. I, I think Leopold Bloom is a very gentle character and uh, very compelling. And, you know, his interior life is is very touching. Or, you know, the, the being propelled into people's interior lives is very moving in the way that Joyce does it in a way that's very, um, you know, it's like Joyce is like, um, you know, if you were to have a cinematic comparison if we're talking about like, you remember the the stop motion dinosaurs that they had in movies from the 1950s? And then if you compare that to Jurassic Park with the CGI, where it's like, you know, nearly photorealistic or whatever, I think Joyce's um, um, method of conveying interior uh, monologue is much more immersive and much more realistic than uh, previous authors. Um, so there's a bit in it, you know, when in one of the episodes you go through various um, people's, interior monologues you know some just random people in dublin and um, there's a there's a boy it's it's his dad's funeral that day paddy dignam um and it's his son and he's thinking about what it means that his dad's dead and 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 you know that that's very touching and you know you suddenly think about all of these people and yeah i think it, it encourages empathy you know you think about all of these people they each have an interior life like yours um so it's kind of the anti-solipsistic um manifesto or something like that you could mm. you could put it that way in in one of the articles I read about you, uh, you 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 spoke about Ulysses and you said about that a teacher is a, that the only response to the ups and downs of life is to embrace them and to say yes, like Molly Bloom. I actually wrote it down because I love that. <laughs> so that must have been something you got from Ulysses. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like I, you know, I've gone through. I think some um, hard times when when I when I read it and when I read that that chapter that you like, like Molly Bloom soliloquy as well. And I think that is the message. I don't give me credit for that because I think that's Joyce's message is, you know, yes. Um, you know, like Leopold Bloom goes through various emotions during that day um, from despondency to jubilance um, you know, and everything in between um, sexual arousal and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And um, yeah, I think that, that, 
you know, th- that Joyce chose to end with the word yes. Um, I think like everything that Joyce put in the novel, and I think why it's so great is that everything has significance. And I think that definitely was a, a, an affirmation for life and to say, say yes to life. I mean, what else are you going to do, you know? Mm. Is there an element of like, do you like myth in general? I've, I've developed an, an interest in narratology now. Um, it wasn't something that I've always had or understood the importance of. And I remember my ma trying to, to talk to me about it. And, you know, I, I didn't like mythology. I wanted to find out, say, about um, the Celts. And my ma handed me a book on Celtic mythology. And I was like, yeah, this is this nonsense they believed in. You know what I mean? It's not pertinent. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I think I had a point in the extent because what I wanted to know was, you know, the fundamentals of, of history, where they came from when they came, you know, this kind of stuff. And it's a different thing. Um, but I think linguistics uh, really encouraged an, an interest in, in, in narratology because um, I'm a big believer in um, Chomsky's universal grammar. Um, and I think it's important as well to, to pose that as a counterpoint to this kind of linguistic relativism. That's the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis. And that's the idea that um, language determines the way it's taught. So different languages make you see the world in fundamentally different ways. And I don't agree with that. You know, different languages certainly make you conceive of certain things in different ways and it can affect uh, your, your, your mode of thinking or your mode of, of looking at things. But, you know, I think the most remarkable thing about different languages is their similarity. Um, you know, for, human language has this fundamental structure, subject, verb, object. We all have a recursion. Um, which is the ability to bed clauses within each other. And that's the definitive thing about human language, I think. And I think if we look at humans as well, um, you know, we're, uh, you know, all of this stuff about racial differences and, and stuff like this, we're remarkably as a species um, the same. Uh, and what has allowed us to proliferate and um, occupy the whole world, all of these different climates without biological changes um, you know, without significant biological changes, I mean, you know, skin deep are, are racial differences, um, is our use of language, our ability to cooperate and our um, ability to uh, use um, uh, complex um, social um, organization and technology and stuff like that that I think is, is derived from language. So I think the similarities in language are much, much more significant um, and important than the differences in language. And I think then, um, that that's true of of myth and and stories and and stuff like that uh, as well. I was say that, yeah, like that, like even Joseph Campbell, who who wrote about Finnegan's Wake and who writes about the monomyth, mm. you know, that the same myths are there across cultures. Every culture, or I don't know if every culture, but the idea of the flood, you know, it's there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a a, a great uh, kind of mad book by Christopher Booker, and it's called Just Seven Stories, and he says that there's you know, basically seven stories, but they're also just one story as well. You know, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Um, but there's, you know, defeating the monster. There's the marriage plot. There is the quest um, stuff like this. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, how um, ingrained these things are as cultural archetypes. So, for example, I hadn't encountered that theory or read about it until after I'd written my novel. And one of the aspects Christopher Booker says about the hero's journey is the call to action and the call to action is initially rejected. So Bilbo Baggins doesn't want to go on the journey, you know, and Gandalf then, you know, kind of railroads him into it. Um, Luke Skywalker, I think the, 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 the same kind of thing, you know, and, um, you know, my book is about gangland and a young fella getting involved in crime. And initially this fella offers to set him up drug dealing and he says no. And then a few weeks later he changes his mind. So, you know, my story was conforming to this archetype that I didn't consciously know about. Yes, was ingrained somewhere within me. And I think that's language works that way as well, because everybody is an expert on language. They just don't know it. We all do these complex grammatical permutations and, you know, conform our, our language to very complex grammatical rules. But we couldn't articulate. Most of us, you know, couldn't articulate those rules. Um, if we tried, yet they are in there. Um, you know, so I think there's there's definitely interesting correspondences there between linguistics and narratology. I actually often find that when people try to write in a way that they think they should write, they go wrong, that it's almost like a natural, you know, with students, for example, if mm. they're writing and they think there is a way they should write rather than just writing the way they would, you know, organically, then they, they get it right when they do it without thinking too much about it. But when they start trying to think about it, sometimes 
it, the, the sentences end up tripping over themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, like, I have a thing with names, you know. I think um, it's good to find a name with significance because I think if you try and make a plausible name, it sounds ridiculous. If you try and, like, pick a name out of a phone book and, and put two two names together, for some reason, they, you know, they just never sounded realistic to me. Whereas if I picked a name that had some symbolism in it, it worked much more. Um, you know, I don't know if that's just me. But, like, yeah, I think that they're, they're you know, there's, there's a kind of... Um, instinctive element to to writing yeah yeah that, that that if you tap into that it can work a lot better than um you know consciously trying to construct something hey, I mean, I know you're reluctant to talk about the next thing that I'm going to bring up. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, how I got to know you or came across you for the first time was uh, you wrote an article. Was it 2017? Yeah. It was 2017. And it was about identity politics. It was published in the Irish Times. And um, subsequently, there was a bit of a, a storm about it. Would you say you were cancelled as a result of it? Um, I don't know, you know, you know, I suppose people would, would say that I wasn't because, you know, I still exist or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, um, I suppose, yeah, certainly there was social stigma attached to me or that's the way it generally works. Anyway, I suppose the reason that I'm generally, um, reluctant to talk about it is because it kind of became what I was known best for when it's not my primary interest. Like, for example, as well, I wrote, you know, seven articles, say, or six articles about police corruption, big article about travelers that I'm most proud of. Um, and these would have all conformed to kind of um, the, you know, left wing uh, accept, accepted ideology on the left. Um, and this was one article that's critical of the left. And that became, you know, the biggest thing that I wrote. Um, and that was inadvertent. You know, I haven't really, you know, wrote, written any more articles. Well, I think I wrote one maybe that was that was focused on, on criticizing the left. So, yeah, it's not my main, um, what would you call it, uh, focus, I suppose. But it became the, the, the main focus. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I read I read the articles again in advance of mm. um, chatting with you today. And I, I agreed with your points. I mean, identity politics is, is one of your points. Identity politics is utterly ineffective at anything other than dividing people. Mm. And I, I found it um, and I read again the response, the letter, the, you know, the hashtag cop on comrades. Yeah. And um, I felt like you were being misinterpreted and your words were being twisted around a bit in, in, the, in that letter. And um, and at the time, I remember being a bit confused about why people were going for you. Like, I didn't really understand it, why the reaction was so vicious, I would say, in some ways. Yeah, I suppose, like, you know, I want to be um, fair about it. So I would say that um, the, the term identity politics, I should have made a distinction there. I was using the term to refer to something that, you know, I... Yeah, phenomenon that I um, understood as identity politics. And that did not mean, you know, all uh, women's liberation, all gay rights, all anti-racism, you know, which some people took it up as. And, you know, that's an, it's understandable. OK, it's, it's it, you know, politics that are centered around identity. But identity politics to me meant, uh, you know, kind of belated um, modern American campus style um, form, of, form of identity politics that, uh, tends not to have a class analysis involved in it and has been co-opted by neoliberalism. And um, that's what I meant by the term uh, that, you know, maybe that wasn't clear from the article. So maybe that contributed to the furore around it. The headline as well, I didn't pick. Um, and I think this is a practice that has to stop. Um, is, um, oh, is that the headline? The bit that I read out? Uh, Identity politics is utterly ineffective at anything other than dividing people. <laughs> I, I would say that certain style of identity politics is ineffective at, at anything other than I, 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 um, dividing people. But I, I wouldn't say um, identity politics, you know, full stop, because I think it's 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 too amorphous a term now, you know. Um, but no, that wasn't the headline. The initial headline, the headline that they gave it was, ah. Oh, it's idiotic acquaintance, straight white men with privilege or something like that. I forget what the, the headline they gave it was, but like loads of people just reacted to the headline and that's the world we live in. 
that's the way of the world, you know. So well, look, it was thought provoking. It got people talking and thinking about these things. I often think in terms of identity that uh, we have become like there is a tendency for people to latch on to one or a few aspects of identity. I teach mm. Buddhism as one of the, the religions that I teach about. Mm. And in it, like they're, they're, that we're made up we're constantly changing, first of all, but we're made up of five what they call skandhas or aggregates. And each of them, like, you know, so it's the physical form, it's feeling, it's thinking, it's action and consciousness. But even within action, there's something like 36 different mental activities. And I think that we're so complex as human beings that sometimes with this thing of identity, it, it, it reduces people to very simplistic um you know, ways of understanding them or what they belong to. I think everybody's so complex. We're, we're humans. Like, you know, we're made up of so many different aspects. So absolutely, you know, and I, I think um, absolutely agree with you. Uh, like one of the things that has been thrown at me and, and thrown at a lot of people that I admire, uh, writers that I admire, is um, the term class reductionism. So they'd say you're always a class reductionist and that you think that the, the only important uh, determinant factor is class. Um, I don't think that's true of, of, of myself, but, you know, okay, you know, people, if people want to call me a class reductionist, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. It's, it's better than some of the things I've been is called. That, is that because you, you kind of, you would say that class is a very important factor? Yeah, I do think it's an important factor, but I also think it's the factor that tends to get, get, get left out um, of these discussions. What I was going to say. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, go on. So, uh, you know, Adolf Reed has pointed out that, um, you know, this term gets thrown around a lot, class reductionist by people who are invested in identity politics. But, you know, they don't say to people, you're a race reductionist. They don't say that very much. Um, and, you know, which is more common on, on the left, race reductionism or class reductionism? I mean, if we're talking about, say, um, police brutality and, and police violence, uh, certainly there's been racially based police uh, violence, um, you know, in, in different parts of the world and horrific um uh, acts of, of murder and, um, you know, oppression uh, based on that. Um, but uh, class is a salient aspect um, in, in lots of those scenarios as well. And in many of them, uh, probably a more salient, even when there is um, race involved. Uh, you know, d d domestically, certainly class has been, uh, you know, an enormous um, uh, determinant of how people are policed. So, for example, drugs are taken in, in every social class uh, in, in Ireland and only one social class gets policed on, on, on the basis of their drug use. And that is the, the, the working class. Um, so, uh, you know, I think um, identity reductionism is much, much more prevalent and uh, much more um, damaging on the left than class reductionism. And the reason for that is because if you apply a class lens to issues, um, the solution will be the material redistribution of wealth. And that will disproportionately benefit people of marginalized identities because they are disproportionately poor. Um, and that doesn't work the other way around. Uh, if you misapply um, an identity lens to an issue, um, you know, you're not going to, 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 to solve um, uh, you know, people's problems by having more diversity in academia or in uh, media or whatever, um, you know, that's only masking the problem. What people need is housing, healthcare and education. And people of all identities need that. And people of all identities deserve that, in my opinion. And um, the, I think the, the, the focus on I think that a lot of times the way identity is focused on is in a way that benefits the professional managerial class. Uh, you know, these people who have, um, who are invested in, in, you know, very academicized um, politics that aims generally at representation rather than redistribution. And I don't think that is, is beneficial to the, to the general mass or the majority of, of, of people of whatever identity. Um, you know what I mean? Like, look, you know, uh, you know, it sounds reductive or, or whatever, but, you know, I think people need housing, healthcare and education. And I don't think they're getting the housing, healthcare and education 
that they need uh, in this country generally. And we're a rich country, we can afford it. Um, so that's why I think we need a, a universalist um, redistributive politics that, you know, is, and, and that's what a, a class focus should be. Yeah, I agree. And I, I actually think that the focus on different elements of identity, it, it's a distraction from those issues. And I agree as well that it's often the one that's excluded or not really discussed or focused on. Whereas if it was, ideally, it would, you know, raise everybody's boat, regardless of what, you know, what identity group they belong to. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, you know, I don't know if, you, if, if, if you've seen this, but the, the CIA just put out a, a video, Humans of the CIA, and it's this young Latino woman that's working for the, the or Latina woman or whatever the, the correct Latinx woman or whatever the term is, the current term is, um, who's working for the CIA, and she talks about being um, cisgender millennial with anxiety and how her she's intersectional and all of this shit. Um, and she's working for the CIA, you know, the, the people that, that kill people, kill trade unionists in South America, that, um, you know, brought us theocracy in Iran, that uh, are, you know, to a large part responsible for two million dead in Iraq, uh, for a conflagration of hell in Libya. And, you know, if they are promoting your politics, you need to do some introspection here about how revolutionary your politics are. And okay, fine. If you want to keep pushing this politics, that's grand. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not here calling anybody out, you know, personally by name or whatever, and um, shaming them for it. But don't sit there like Che Guevara when you're pushing on an open door. It's not a coincidence. This stuff. I mean, class is not in the equality legislation. You know, race, gender, sexuality. Um, you know, th- that stuff is in the equality legislation. Class isn't. Uh, the open societies grants, if you look at them, uh, you know, it's, it's um, you know, it's all kind of sex work and, um, you know, uh, racial politics and um, gender politics and all of this sort of stuff. And, and class generally isn't included in the, the open societies grants and stuff like this. And, you know, same for, for many foundations uh, and NGOs and stuff like that. And there's a reason for that. You know what I mean? It's because class is the one, you know, everybody's in favor of equality until it hurts their pocket. And the ruling class are attempting to make a settlement with a section of the professional managerial class of marginalized identities in the hope of, um, you know, buying off the professional managerial class of the left, basically. Um, you know, someone I know called them the, the NGO industrial complex. Um, and, you know, this, this is a fact, you know what I mean? Like, and, you know, to, to, to kind of to, to acknowledge that and to recognize that, and to recognize we're not living in the 1950s is not to be against women's liberation or to be against anti-racism, or to be, you know, like Fred Hampton is, is, is a, a great inspiration to me, you know, and he, you know, he said, you don't fight for with fire, you don't fight um, racism with more racism, uh, you fight it with solidarity. And, you know, he said what, what people are really scared of is people of all identities coming together um, in a universalist basis. And he said anybody that was interested in the revolution um, uh, knew that. And I, I think those ideas now, like, I mean, people would call Fred Hampton a class reductionist if he was putting out that, that stuff out now. I mean, Adolf Reed, um, brilliant uh, black academic, gets called a class reductionist for, for putting forward similar ideas. So, look, it is the, the, the world we live in, but these politics are hegemonic in, in lots of areas. Um, neoliberalism is, you know, pinkwashing, draping itself in a rainbow flag. And this is happening. So to, to pretend it's not, um, you know, is it, not to you know, it, it, I, I suppose is, is sticking your head in the sand and to to oppose neoliberal version of identity politics, which I should have been more specific about. You know, it's neoliberal identity politics that I object to. It's not um, women's liberation or gay rights or anti-racism. I, I don't think, though. I mean, I, I did reread your article twice this morning, actually, and at no point did you say you were against women's liberation or you were against. So I don't know that interpretation. There was a choice, you know, somebody chose to interpret it that way. And um, I sure look, you can interpret anything anyway, in a way, can you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's like the left is suffocated by this stuff, I think, in many regards. Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, you only have to look at the, you know, the weaponization of, of these kind of issues in the case of Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, who was smeared as an anti-Semite and um, to see how these things can be abused. You know, like it's incredibly important to you, like anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. It was famously said, and it's incredibly important to fight anti-Semitism. I mean, when George Soros gets abused for being Jewish, that should be, you know, absolutely rejected. George Soros is not 
bad because he's a Jew. George Soros, you know, um, the, the problem with George Soros is that he's a, a, a billionaire and there shouldn't be any billionaires, you know. Um, and he's one of many billionaires, like the Koch brothers, who um, use their capital in um, nefarious ways and stuff like this. So, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn was was smeared, a lifelong anti-racism campaigner as an anti-Semite, that should have rang alarm bells about how um, this stuff can be, can be weaponized very effectively against the left um, in the current kind of climate. But, like, look, the victors write the history. You know, I, I don't think um, I'm going to persuade anybody and certainly you know you're saying oh people chose to interpret that way but communication is a two-way street and it, the, the article certainly didn't have the effect i wanted it to have um so you know i suppose maybe you should respect on that right um can we, we we'll start to wrap it up i think but i wanted to ask you like your plans now so you finished the phd and you mentioned that you're still writing and you're doing academic work what's the what's the dream or where do you see yourself going or where would you like to go well, you know, I'd like, as I said, I, I see academic um, study of literature and, and writing as a perfect yin yang for me. So, you know, I'd like to continue that. Um, I'm, I'm writing. I don't know what, what's going to be the next um, book yet. I'm not 100% sure. I have a few things in the pipeline. But one of the things I do that I find is very productive is to uh, keep a notebook and write down little um, snippets, often of just conversation that I find are, are interesting. And uh, certainly I think Dublin is a, a, a wealthy um, store of those um, little gems. Like one of the things that's in my notebook for a future book is a taxi driver was saying to me, um, you know, about the changing health advice and dietary nutrition and stuff like that. And he was saying, uh, the butter's good for you now again, apparently. Uh, but but the, the bread is bad. What am I meant to do? Smear it on me big toe? Um <laughs> So when, when people say something funny or, you know, it might not be something funny. It might just be a little, um, you know, peculiar phrase or something like that. I write it down. And not only does it provide brilliant material uh, for you to draw upon, like when I wrote my first book, really, it was almost like a collage because I had all of these little notes and just lashed them all together into a book. But not only does it provide material for, for writing, it makes life um, kind of more um, significant or more enjoyable because you're watching out for these things or you're appreciating them and appreciating the significance of, of how people talk and what people say in a way that you aren't if you're, if you're um, not writing it down. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that might be a, a good tip for people who are interested in writing or, you know, just interested in, um, in the way people talk. That's, it's quite meditative or something like, no, I mean, in, because if you're doing that, then your attention has to be focused on the minute. You're very aware of the conversation as it's happening of like, I suppose, the surround as well. Do you ever have a lucid yeah. dream? Um, have I ever had a lucid dream? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if that's connected. I don't know. You know, my, my friends would disagree with you because they would say, you know, sometimes we're on the session and next thing I'll whack out the notebook and they're like, oh, for fuck's sake, can you not just enjoy yourself like a normal human being? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably there's a balance. Yeah, yeah, possibly. But you know, then again, some of the some of the things that were said on, on sessions are some of the funniest things that um that, that I've ever written down. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Great material. So um right, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Is there anything that I ha- haven't covered that you'd like to There is actually Colette. There is actually Colette. Right. I, I wanted to make sure um to to say that uh you know, when I was getting a lot of um um criticism, let's say. Uh, over my article, um, it really meant a lot to me that uh, that that you reached out and you know publicly as well um, were supportive. And I think in a, in a very reasonable way, you know what I mean. I think it was hard when you're in that kind of situation, you know, on either side, um, it's hard to see the wood for the trees, and you know, uh, tempers are, are very inflamed and stuff like that. And I think y- you were very restrained and, and rational, and um, it meant an awful, awful lot to me. But I think it was also brave, you know. I really admire that. Um, and I think you're still um, like that, you know, you're very inquisitive and very um, sincere and honest in your opinions, but also about um, your your lack of knowledge. And one of the things that, you know, I, I find bad sometimes about academia is people don't want to say that they didn't read Nietzsche or something, but you can't read everybody. Do you know what I mean? So if a mate, Des Ryan, and like, I remember I said to him one time, oh, I was ensconced there with a book. And he's like, this guy's a linguist, you know, and he says, what does ensconced mean? And he's absolutely shameless in saying what he doesn't know. 
Um, and I think that's a really good and characteristic. And it's actually a sign of intellectual strength that people, you know, it's insecurity that stops people saying that. Um, so, you know, I, I'm really glad that we've developed a friendship and all from this. It's one of the good things to come out of getting um, getting piled on. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't express enough how, how, how much it meant to me and how much I admire you for, for your stance yeah, on these well, things. Sure. No bother. I mean, I didn't know you. I didn't know the people who wrote the letter. I didn't. I just read both things. I read the different and I just tried to figure out my own opinion. And I don't like anyway when when there's a big, huge pile on. I tend to think it's very easy within a group to just go with the group. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like a, a fish, a, a fish in a in a shoal. The one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the the, so, the only dead things go with the flow. Only live things swim against the stream. That's someone said that, didn't he? It was Chesterton? Oh, I right. think that, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, I agree with you as well. I, I think um, you know, people have kind of characterised me as being bitter about getting piled on and all of that. And I am. Listen, I'm not going to lie. But the other thing is, the article was about that, about people getting piled on. It says the most shameful thing about this kind of politics is the flagellation of heretics. Um, you know, so I was against. I wrote the article because I was against it. And, you know, listen, if I'm excluded from the, the left of the group, that's fine with me. I, I don't want to be a part of, of this kind of thing. And um, I'd be happier to, 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 you know, have written something and be excluded than to go along with, with, with kind of stuff I, I don't agree with. So um, I think you're very much of, of that same mindset, but probably more so than me, because I've kind of tried to stay out of all of this uh, milieu for a long time, whereas um, you're very forthright and very... Um, you've you've great integrity about um, your your intellectual um, life, let's say. Thank you. Don't know how true that is, but I mean, <laughs> I do know I I don't necessarily like being part of groups because yeah. there's dangers. But I'm sure there's good things being you know it can be it can there's good things in groups as well. But I was wondering then you know in the Ulysses quote that that I read in that article which you had written before that happened. Mm. You know, the only response to the ups and downs of life, embrace them and say yes, like Molly mm. Bloom. So <laughs> will we leave it on that note then? Yeah, that's always a good note to leave it on, Molly Bloom. We'll give her the final word for sure. That's it for this episode of Spokes. There is more information in the show notes and with links to some other articles and details on Frankie's work. If you like today's episode, check out some of our previous recordings. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Spokes is produced by Colette Colfer and Terry Hackett.